Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of PLP Talks, where we have interesting conversations with people we know in the bike industry. In today's episode, we're going to talk with Gabe Tiller, the executive director behind the Oregon Timber Trail. He's also a well-known bike packing photographer who's developed a bunch of really popular routes like the Oregon Outback. In this interview, we're going to talk about what he thinks makes an iconic route. We're going to learn about some of the brass tacks behind something like the Oregon Timber Trail, like what it takes to work with a collection of people to create an iconic route, and how that's different from just being a single route creator. And before we start, I wanted to give a big thanks to the people that signed up to be monthly subscribers in the month of February and March. It's these small donations that really keep this channel going and this YouTube interview series going. So if you want to join this list of amazing people, be sure to check out the show notes or the description below of the video if you're watching it on YouTube. And this episode is also supported by Whitefish Bike Retreat. Learn more about them at whitefishbikeretreat.com. It's truly a magical place that caters to bike packers, bike tourists, mountain bikers, and gravel cyclists. You can either camp outside on their property or stay in one of their private rooms or bunk rooms. The Whitefish Bike Retreat also has a full-on bike repair area, as well as a small shop that lets you rent and buy bike packing gear so you can try before you buy. And there's also an amazing network of single track on property that connects to the larger Whitefish uh, single track network. So if you're passing through on your Great Divide journey or if you're just looking for a bikey place to base camp, definitely check out the Whitefish Bike Retreat. So put in your earbuds, hop on the trainer if you're at home, or pretend like you're working at your desk. It's okay, we won't tell, and enjoy the episode. Thanks again, Gabe, for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk about it. So I, I feel like one of the things that you're really well known for is just these amazing routes that you create. Can you talk maybe a little bit big picture about what you feel like makes a great route? So I think what really... For me, what really makes it fun is if a route is, is thematic somehow, if it crosses a whole state or it crosses a whole country or it's focused on hot springs or um, a certain set of like the best mountain biking trails in an area um, or just uh, your own theme, whether it's just a, a, a place that you saw on the map that you want to go visit. So I think that's the my biggest takeaway is that that's what's really inspiring to people is if you can give it this this theme throughout the whole route. So when you when you come up with a final route, how many iterations does it usually take? I mean, I know it just it change it varies by length of the route, but just kind of a like a rough picture of what what's behind what what it takes to do to create a route. That's a good question. Uh, and it depends on if it's something that I'm just going to go do or if it's something I want to publish. So uh, if it's something I'm just going to go do, I probably go back and look at it and edit it and, and analyze different, different map sources, uh, maybe a half a dozen times or something. Um, if I'm going to publish it afterwards, then there's a whole, like even a more thorough, um, analyzation of, of the route in really fine detail. Uh, so for something like the timber trail, that's a, an iterative process. It's still evolving. It's going to change each year. Um, and that I would say probably went through a hundred different changes or more until we launched in July. And now we have a lot more data since launch and a lot more feedback and suggestions from our riders. 
and that'll all get folded into the next round of revisions. And that's going to be probably uh, a good 40 hours of work right there, updating the route guide and route materials. So it's a lot of work behind the scenes that's really, well, really rewarding, but I don't, I think it's taken for granted and a lot of people don't realize the amount of work they need to put into a route uh, if they're developing a route on their own. Let's jump into uh, the Timber Trail. For those that aren't familiar with the project, can you kind of just paint the broad picture? Sure. Yeah, the Oregon Timber Trail is a 670-mile route across uh, Oregon's backcountry. It's really focused on backcountry single track. A lot of bikepacking routes are dirt roads or Jeep roads, and this has plenty of those too, but we really wanted to focus on including as many uh, single track sections and really keep that experience a backcountry experience. Um, so it starts down on the California border uh, in southern Oregon and the right outside the community of Lakeview and uh, traverses the Warner Mountains and Winter Rim north and then connects to the Cascade Range, drops into Oak Ridge, winds around the Cascades past Bend and Sisters, uh, then comes up around Mount Hood and, and finishes in, in Hood River, Oregon. So is that the preferred direction going north? Yeah, we had to we had to sort of choose one at some point, um, just how how we worded it and, and developed the materials. And you can certainly ride it in either direction, though some sections um, we developed with the direction in mind. For instance, Oak Ridge, we climb up Bunchgrass Ridge if you're going from south to north which is uh, we actually take the, a road access to climb up Bunchgrass Ridge instead of going the trail for most of the elevation gain. But uh, that means you get to descend down the Middle Fork Trail. And that, that's sort of like if you're going the other direction, then you descend down all Bunchgrass and maybe take the road for some of the Middle Fork Trail on your climb up going south. So it's just sort of you just have to if you're going the opposite direction, you just have to maybe make a few modifications on your own. What's the percentage breakdown of single track to uh, road sections? It's about half and half right now. It's a little, I think we clocked it at about 51% single track at this mm -hmm. point. And most of these single track trails already existed and you're linking them up or has there been new trail development? Yeah, that's that's a, um, a good point. It's the whole timber trail project has been really analyzing existing trails and roads and figuring out what we need to do to connect them and maintain them or rehabilitate them. In some cases, a lot of these trails have been just covered by blowdown or damaged by fire. Um, and we're, it's much easier to rehabilitate a trail than it is to build a new trail. So that's sort of the approach we've taken is using existing resources and really figuring out how to uh, lend, our, lend our hand, lend this momentum that we have and really sort of uh, get it up and running to to provide the experience that we want to provide. So a lot of the, the, the trails that need like rehabilitation, were they mountain bike specific or were they just multi-use trails that are, are being packaged into the timber trail? There's very, very few mountain bike specific trails on the timber trail. Uh, most trails are multi-use trails. So um, including the, the one that comes to mind, the Fremont <clears throat> National Rec Trail in the Fremont tier is a 130-mile-long National Recreation Trail designated in 1980. But it's the really low population area down there, uh, and I think it's, it's starting to see some people exploring that far into the, into the southern part of the state. But uh, for many years, it just hasn't had the use or like the, the dedicated trail groups really maintaining it. So um, that's, that's, that's not to say that they haven't been. There's been some really good work done by 
Oregon equestrian groups down there, but it's 130 miles long, so there's only so much you can do if you're a small organization. So that's a, that's a multi-use trail that I've seen on a map for many years and have heard that it's impossible, don't try. And, and it wasn't until we had a project like this <clears throat> with some weight behind it that we could actually conceive of, of turning it into something that we could ride or hike or ride a horse on. When you picture a rider doing this, who's the ideal rider? Is it something where you need lots of technical ability to, to traverse? Or like, I guess what kind of skill level would you need to, to do it successfully? Right now, yeah, I would say you're going to need a pretty uh, significant technical skill level and just physical fitness level. And uh, it's going to be a lot of long days and a lot of probably demoralizing days. So, <laughs> uh, and that's just in this, just because of the rugged state. I think our we don't want to dumb down the trail too much and make it super easy, but we want to find that happy medium where it's something that you need a a good intermediate uh, skill level. We don't want it to be super aggressive. Um, so we've sort of tried to figure out, and that was part of how we decided which trails to use. Some of the trails were, we decided were too technical to include in the route. And, uh, that'll sort of get evened out over time. Each tier and each segment has a, a rating, both, uh, a technical rating, uh, a physical rating and sort of a bikepacking rating, which is a, a scale developed by <clears throat> bikepacking routes. And, and that's sort of just a, how difficult is it to get water, carry water, find food, the logistics component. So if the ratings are probably going to change each time we update the route a little bit, but hopefully that'll even out over time. Is, is the opportunity for resupply fairly available, or are there really long stretches where you have to carry multiple days of food and water? Yeah, um, that's a good question. Uh, we have about, I think the longest section without food is around 100 miles longest section without water is i believe around 50 uh so it just depends on how fast you're able to go um i I would say at any given point you can always bail off the route and get to some sort of services in case of emergency um in shorter distance than that but like actually along the route within like a 10 mile corridor that's those are the longest distances Let's talk a little bit about the tier system. Why why break it up into tiers, and you know, was it due for the the rider experience? Yeah, it's a. I think it is ended up being one of the smarter decisions we made from the get go. It's just easier to digest that way. Um, if I'm developing a route, I sort of start and know it really well, and don't mind if it's one big chunk. So, like, I wouldn't necessarily have done that just for myself. But if I'm like looking at someone else's route, it's just so much information to really take in and digest and figure out how it stacks up against what how one tier is different than the other. Like, so breaking it into tiers, then just, you can just look at a tier and be like, this one maybe is the one for me. And um, and 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 each one has a really natural sort of character to it. Each one sort of is loosely associated with a national forest, and each of the national forests has a really unique. Uh, landscape really unique forests really unique unique geology so so it's not just like a artificial division there's something like inherent to to that region that that would make up the tier yeah absolutely do you envision uh people doing it in sections because there's a tier it's presented as a tier or doing it in one fell swoop yeah i mean the just sort of like the pct um it 
it's inspiring because it does exist in one big uh, big route, but what's actually manageable for most people is taking off a, a week or something and doing a smaller section. So we're really expecting that people like do take four years and do one tier at a time or something like that. And in our in our rider survey of this past season, we found that about three quarters, 75% of the people that were using the timber trail were actually car camping and doing day rides on sections of the timber trail. And only, I think it was about eight or 10% rode the whole timber trail. So, you know, it's, we knew it was going to be weighted like that a little bit, but we weren't actually going, we weren't prepared for it to be weighted that uh, much, uh, that few people actually riding the through the whole trail, the through bike experience. Right. Do you have a sense of how many people have, have done the, the complete trail yet? It's really hard to say. I, I wish there was a better way to, to gauge those numbers. I, it's not a lot. I think we had a really short season. We published the route files in, in mid-July. And by mid-August, we had pretty expansive wildfires across Oregon that ended up closing a lot of uh, the trail. So, um, yeah, I think, I think this year might hopefully will be fewer wildfires um, and a little better year for everything. Um, I think in, in 2017, we probably had about a dozen um, people ride the whole route from, from start to finish. Do you have a, a personal favorite section of the route? Uh, I, I really like the, the Fremont tier. A lot of the route, I'm, I'm, I mean, I've been riding in a lot of the areas of the rest of the route for uh, a number of years, and they're all amazing in their own right. But the Fremont route is definitely feels like the, the uncharted territory, and that's really exciting to me mm-hmm. to go down there and ride trails. And it's, it's honestly some of the most stunning landscape we have in the state, just the this basin range and these huge uh, cliffs and, and lakes and uh, vistas is it's pretty incredible. I feel like it's really unparalleled in Oregon and even in the Pacific Northwest. So um, I'm excited to, to have more people come and really appreciate that. I think it's it's sort of a really uh, diamond in the rough down there. Right. If someone were to just like base camp and ride that section, where would be a good place to, to stay? Is there camping or is there a town nearby? Yeah, that's part of our work this spring is actually developing some of these weekend um, trip ideas or just coming up with a good resource for that type of, of, of trip. Um, so in the in the Fremont tier, there's, there's a lot of really good camping. I really like the little town of Paisley. It's got uh, everything you need. It's got a, a, a coffee shop, a saloon, and a little store and a, a gas station that's open like on six days a week. So <laughs> <laughs> it's like, uh, it's, it's a good place. Oh, it's got a little hotel there and there's camping right up the, the, um, the river there in town. That's a, so it's a Chuacan, right? River. I, yeah. And I, I always pronounce it wrong. So I think it's actually pronounced Shiwakan or Chuacan. Chewy can. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <Chewy> <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I'm like, I'm trying, trying to get everyone to just start using the, the shortened Chewy. The Chewy. <laughs> we can get Chewy to catch on. Nice. Yeah. There's some good fishing there. Uh, Laura and I actually like, uh, did some camping there, I think last year. And, um, yeah, you can, it's, it's a fun, fun little river to fish. I think there used to be a fly shop in town. I don't know if they're still open, but yeah. Yeah, I've heard that. I'd like to go back and, and fish or even float it in high water. It looks like a really cool river. Yeah. Well, I think one thing that's really unique about uh, the Timber Trail as opposed to many other bikepacking routes, it's like it sounds like you're working with uh, a group of people. Can you tell us a little bit about who's involved and 
what the structure is like? It's definitely been a really unique and, and, and special opportunity. It's not just me looking at maps and publishing a GPS file. Uh, it's been much more thorough, thorough than that. It's been collaborative. Initially, it was Travel Oregon, uh, our tourism agency here in the state of Oregon. Uh, they, they're not just a marketing agency. They also work to uh, create assets, tourism assets, and, and especially recreation assets in the state. So they were looking to create, uh, or at least figure out the feasibility of uh, some sort of hot to hot system like exists in British Columbia or the Alps or New Zealand. And, and out of that study, the, this timber trail idea was born and that's when sort of I was looped in and we started linking trails together <clears throat> and started linking a lot of stakeholders together and, and having meetings and figuring out what the concerns and the opportunities and different alignment options were. Uh, and then last March, we that had been in process for about two years, I think. Last March, we formed the Oregon Timber Trail Alliance, which is a, a nonprofit organization just dedicated to shepherding the the, the route forward in a, in a sustainable and progressive um, sort of fashion. Uh, so that organization now is, um, is, is, is growing and has been extremely productive. It's been really exciting for me to be involved with an organization that sort of just come up out of nowhere and is just getting things done. So that's like very exciting <laughs> for me. Um, yeah, we published, a, we just published like our, our recap of 2017 on our, our website. So that does a really good job of sort of summarizing what has happened since we formed last March. Um, I mentioned the, the stewardship work we've been doing. Um, we also have, we're also trying to really improve the experience, which um, can manifest in a bunch of different ways and that's just focusing on the rider experience that we've identified this backcountry single track experience um, but the other two tenants of our mission are a community tenant which is really engaging in the local communities that the route travels through and figuring out how we can create economic development around the Oregon Timber Trail and really infuse some some tourism dollars in these communities as well um, as an education component which is could be any number of things whether it's teaching trail stewards about safely operating a chainsaw or whether it's just holding a slideshow on the, the history of the timber trail or a slide, or we have a, we have a class coming up on um, how to make backcountry meals, like do your own like backcountry cooking and, nice. and that sort of thing. So the education component is just like we saw early on that there was some, uh, there was a need to really educate users that, that might not be familiar with how uh, how to ride their bike in the backcountry, how to camp in the backcountry, and do all that in a, a really sustainable um, fashion. So, uh, those are those are the four tenants organizations founded around. We've done some really great work so far, and uh, we just published this morning a calendar of events for 2018. So, I'm really excited for that work too. Imagine must be like herding cats in terms of like the different uh, land managers and types of land. Is it all public, and like how do you how do you broach those conversations with the land managers? It's it's just an ongoing conversation, um, and that was the first people we contacted because it's we're amazingly lucky here in Oregon to have so much public land. The route is about ninety percent on for, National Forest Service trails and soft surface roads, and then five ten percent is on uh, probably ODOT ODOT roads on the shoulders of some paved roads here and there, but for the vast majority of the ride, you're going to be on public land. So 
that's really cool. Um, they were the first stakeholders we really started talking to. They directed the conversation and who else we should bring in at the early stages. Um, and we signed a memorandum of understanding with the Region 6, uh, which is like the Pacific Northwest Forest Service in July. <clears throat> um, and we're working now with each individual, each of the four individual national forests. It's really, we're working really closely to really hold these stewardship events in a, in a safe and professional manner. Um, and probably ultimately uh, develop even closer, more formal relationships with each one of the national forests that we travel through. Mm -hmm. When you're talking to them, what were kind of their initial concerns or were they fully supported from the get go? I mean, it's a it's a cool concept. Everyone likes the concept. It's a it's a big picture concept. Um, the concerns were really varied uh, depending on the area, like the Fremont National Forest is concerned that not enough people are going to be using the trail or maintaining the trail. The Deschutes National Forest is worried that too many people are going to be using and maintaining the trail. <laughs> so it's, it's really specific, and it's even more granular than than each forest. It's each specific trail or trailhead or road crossing. It's it really was a a, a step by step, a mile by mile sort of like look at these 670 miles um, of this alignment and and think about. Uh, increased use, think about erosion, think about impact to, to the, the ecology, um, think about just impact in the communities and, and uh, impact with other trail users. It was, it was, it was, that's why it's taken two years of these, these discussions to really suss all that out and keep track of it all and really prioritize what concerns were the, the highest concern and how to um, come up with solutions for them. Mm -hmm. And that's basically that's what that's where the four tenants of our organization's mission came from was was that those conversations. So I think it hopefully it, it was successful or at least will continue to be successful. Right. So how many people are involved in the the actual route planning? That's been primarily me, um, and then uh, Harry Dalgard from Travel Oregon has been really involved in helping uh, convene these meetings with other stakeholders and talk about that. Uh, and obviously then. Lots of other input from the Forest Service, other trail organizations, other, uh, and, and then now that we've had riders out on the route, <clears throat> um, we've had a lot of input from from them on what sections needed maintenance work or what sections. We had a couple instances where it just didn't go through. It was just a routing <laughs> error because I haven't ridden the whole 670 miles consecutively <laughs> yet. So, uh, it, yeah, a lot of different sources. Um, actually, this this is a I'm drinking coffee out of this mug that I just got this morning uh, <laughs> from a super rad lady down um, in the Willamette tier. And she, she heard, she heard about the project very early on and would like go out and scout different sections that I hadn't been and was like really invaluable in like creating the route and sort of uh, finding a lot about this, this old Cascades crest area that I hadn't heard hardly anything about. <clears throat> um, and then, Trans Cascadia ended up using some of those trails this this past year. So it was, it was one of those really cool stories where it was like didn't <laughs> exist, and all of a sudden this lady went and did some scouting, and we're including in the route, and now there's like a race happening down there, and all this trail maintenance, and uh, people are using these trails, not just bikers but equestrians and hikers too, that haven't really been open for many years. So nice was that. That wasn't Jolene, was it? Or... Yeah, it was Jolene. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. It seems like a lot of bikepacking routes are developed by and by a, usually an individual, like what's, what are the strengths of doing it by, 
by committee and what are like some of the challenges, I guess? Like when I came on to the project, it was sort of a, a list of trails that might connect. Um, and then I stitched them together and sure it's changed over, uh, uh the past couple of years quite a bit, but that, that initial alignment was primarily, um, my work, I think, and bringing other people on collaboratively has really made it stronger because now you have the ownership of a lot of people. And if it was just one person, you, I think the tendency is to just publish the route and there's no real uh, motivation to ever update it or improve it or maintain it. And I think with an organization, we're constantly going to be looking at it and, and trying to improve it and, and just really... It's really just got a lot, lot more legs than just a, an individual publishing a route. At least in my in the routes that I've published, I have they're great. I've spent a lot of time developing them, but once they're published, they sort of just like walk away, you know. <laughs> and this has got a much, much better component of that that stewardship route. So yeah, we've got a couple of cool um, little new trail connector connectors in the works where. We're just looking at areas where a route will wind around and go around a lake on a dirt road or something. And we're like, oh, if we just built a mile of new trail right here, we could cut this big lobe off that doesn't really go anywhere. And this would be a more direct route and more single track. So we're just trying to trying to assess those where those experience improvements can really be uh, improved. And because we're an organization, because we have these relationships with the national forests, we're really able to actually talk about doing this in reality and, and hopefully fine, like sort of fine tweak the whole route over the, the coming, coming years. And, um, I think it's, it ends up being a much stronger, uh, product in the end for sure. Do you think this is, this, this will be a trend eventually in, in bikepacking route creation, like this kind of collaborative partnership that's where routes are a little bit more institutionalized, I guess. I mean, if you look at any other outside of the bike world, it, there's always somebody who's sort of the, the spearhead, spearheading the thing. If you look at the Pacific Northwest Trail, you have one guy who, like, he had been just championing this Pacific Northwest Trail that was just as rugged and impossible to use as the Timber Trail was a couple of years ago. Um, but after he spent, I think, 20, 30 years really fighting for it now, it's it's a... It's a national, is it a national scenic trail, national rec trail? I think it's a national scenic trail. Yeah, it's through hikers hiking it. It's, you know, that's a really cool thing. Same thing with the Arizona Trail, Colorado Trail, Pacific <clears throat> um, Crest Trail. They all, they all started out, I'm sure, as someone's passion project, but developed into an organization and it really has that, that sustainability component to it. Mm-hmm. Did, you, did you model the Timber Trail, like the, the collaborative effort to like hiking trails to, to kind of get a sense of structure? Um, not necessarily. I mean, we definitely use that parallel a lot as a way to explain the type of experience we're trying to create for, for backcountry cyclists. We haven't necessarily tried to create a parallel with how an organization is structured. I mean, you look at organizations like the PCTA and it's hard not to be jealous of how well they've developed as an organization. I mean, they have a, a whole trail skills college of how to build and maintain trails. And this is a free for all resource. You can go on there and, and download all this documentation on how the, the really nerdy specifics on how to build and maintain trails. And, and just the, the amount of resource that went into developing those, those is, is pretty impressive. Um, all of their, their fundraising and volunteer and, and all of their, their 
their engagement with their community is is super incredible. So it's it's really hard to like not look at that and be like, okay, someday maybe, <laughs> but it's, it's almost unobtainable. Um, it, it seems like at this point, but we're only we're only six months in. So yeah, has this experience kind of and they changed how you view recreation in general, or does it kind of just confirm things that you've known? It's a good question. I haven't thought about like how to move forward. Um, I think, I think it's big picture. So it would have been, it's pretty hard to think about at least thinking back and how I would have done that or how I could have done that alone. And it, it seems pretty impossible and looking forward. It's pretty obvious a lot of people have sort of had this light bulb go off being like, oh, there's this trail in Oregon and there's this trail in Baja, California. Like, what about this gap that's called California in between them? Um, why can't we connect that line? And then what about Washington? You know, like it's it's sort of the natural next big picture question. And and I don't have the I don't know anything about mountain biking in California. So it's like it, I want to push that forward. But it's really going to depend on being able to to talk to people who know the trails there and, and not just their local trails, but talk to people who understand like the connectivity of, of trail systems and, and how it all works together instead of just your your local backdoor trails. As someone that's looking for a new route to ride, what do you have any routes that, that you want to ride yourself personally? Yeah, I think the some of the the ones that Bikepacking Roots has just published this past year are super interesting um i want to do the i think it's the plateau passage one i hope i'm not mixing them up i just i was just looking at like three of them being so they're probably all jumbled in my brain but uh that one is sort of a neat connector from las vegas all the way over to somewhere in colorado um uh so that'll be super neat i, I that's sort of on my list but honestly the 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 cool the fun thing for me is still the the getting out there and exploring stuff. So I'll probably start doing a lot or probably continue doing a lot of the the scouting and the writing in Oregon, but then going to California and trying to figure out how some of those connections and trail systems um, exist down there mm -hmm. or, or another direction up in Washington. Like since you've been bikepacking, how have you seen it changed? It's, I mean, it's gotten way, way more popular. Uh, which I think is great. It's, I think bikepacking has the potential to be just more inclusive than a lot of different types of cycling. What most cycling is cycling genres come out of, Oh, here's this way we can, you know, put some limiters on the type of experience and create a competitive event out of it. And that's been like the, the, the ultimate like achievement of most different types of biking for whatever reason, is this just human nature to be competitive? I think bikepacking isn't really that way, although some people are, are doing it competitively and that's that's great. But um, I think bikepacking is a little broader and, and in that, and because of that has the ability to draw on a lot more people that would don't really care about cyclocross, don't really want to do a road race. Um, and and because of that, I think the um, the different types of people and the demographics that uh, people that are interested in bikepacking are quite a bit broader and larger than uh, most genres of cycling. You know, it seems like uh, bike brands were making bikes primarily for sport, right? And and now like the shift has been a little bit more exploratory, which is kind of a cool change to see in the last couple of years. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it's not just bike packing. It's, it's the gravel trend, the adventure bike trend, um, and even mountain bikes. You've gotten away from your 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 downhill racing or your cross country racing into trail bikes and enduro bikes and that sort of thing. So, it's it's a really cool trend. I mean, that's just my. I don't have anything against competition. I, I just like to see it diversify a little bit. Cause yeah. If it's just focused on competition. You have this weird. It's just a weird uh, sport. It's not. It's not. <laughs> it's not like hiking. You know. It's like. It's There's no competitive specific. hiking. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was fascinating. In, uh, in our interview with Benedict, he said that someone from Specialized had told him that you know they they, they kind of predict that you know this ex- exploratory cycling is going to overtake um, you know the road bike sales in like five years, and that'll be interesting wow. to see if that actually comes to. That would be. Yeah, it would be great to to see that happen. I just think it's more accessible to a lot more people, and honestly. I don't know if it's just that me and my friends are getting older or something, but I'm hearing a lot more people just fed up with trying to go ride their bike with traffic. Uh, and now through navigation and cycling technology, riding on roads and trails that we would otherwise <laughs> in a few years ago, not really consider feasible. Now they're possible. And I think a lot of people are like, that's clicking for them and they're like oh i don't actually have to ride with traffic anymore if i use these navigation resources if i use this this newer tech bike technology i can actually go ride these really remote really rugged uh trails and areas yeah it seems you know it seems like a like no-brainer like given the choice between riding a paved road with traffic or you know unpaved surface where there's no traffic like why would you choose the former (laughs) yeah the whole gravel biking trend sort of cracks me up it's like no one likes riding their bike through deep gravel we just like it because there's no cars there <laughs> right <laughs> i mean that you brought up an interesting point do you, do you feel like there's a a tight correlation between you know the technology and the types of riding that were that's popular now yeah absolutely i mean, just like there's a the huge uh huge popular like a huge gain in popularity with with through hiking and lightweight uh backpacking um that transcends into cycling as well gear has just gotten infinitely lighter and better warmer more waterproof um it's just gotten so much easier to do this in a comfortable manner used to be if you were doing anything like this you just had to be good at suffering and that was your tool for for (laughs) having fun (laughs) uh now it's there's still definitely that component in there i'm sure but it's it's completely feasible to pack very little. You don't have to suffer carrying a lot of gear or suffer being cold and hungry. You can actually be pretty comfortable with very little. And and through hikers have realized that. Bike packers are realizing that. I think that this this whole tr- this trend in both of those worlds is really driven by by technology and and fabric technology. I think it's it's cool to see. Now you can ride the timber trail. And- a wide variety of bikes, but what what do you think are like some of the technical requirements that you think would make up you know the perfect bike for for the, the timber trail? Twenty nine inch hardtail is a great choice. Uh, a plus size like a two point eight three inch tire is probably going to be better, but definitely not necessary. Just a regular mountain bike tire is fine. Um, I think it was about half and half of the riders that rode it this year were on full suspension versus hardtails. I think there was a couple of people who did it fully rigid, which is also totally possible. Just it's going to beat you up a lot more without that front suspension. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Yeah, I would I would definitely not go any narrower than like a 2.2 inch tire or something. I know a lot of people were like, oh, can I do this on this these fat road bikes with uh, with sort of fat road tires and. I, you can do it on whatever you want, but I just would recommend it. Yeah, you could do it, but <laughs> so let's uh, let's wrap up with one last question. What is uh, your dream bike, or do you really have your dream bike? <laughs> um, I've been trying to figure that out. I I've been doing I've been having my do all bike be my mountain bike and bike packing bike, and it's been great. Uh, Carver and Harvester. It's a titanium twenty nine plus bike. Um, I got it right at the beginning of the whole plus bike trend. Um, I had a, a Surly Krampus right when they came out and loved it so much that I upgraded to that as soon as that got available. Um, and it's been great, but I think I'm going to shift into a bike packing specific bike and then a full suspension mountain bike a little bit that I'll still do some bike packing with. So mm-hmm. I don't know what that is going to be, but I did just order a Monet bikes. Um, he's a, a small builder. He used to started out working for Black Sheet Bikes in Colorado, now builds his own. Um, and that's going to be another really, really rad 29, uh, plus bike and, uh, should be, should be done next month. Um, so <laughs> excited to build that up. Sweet. Well, thanks so much for being on the show. And, uh, if you guys enjoyed this video, don't forget to like, share, subscribe. If you have any other questions for Gabe, leave those in the comments below. I'll try to get them to answer them. And thanks for being on the show, Gabe. Yeah. Thanks for chatting, Russ. Yeah. Thanks again for listening to the podcast version of PLP Talks. And if you enjoyed it, uh, consider being a monthly supporter. It really goes a long way. And if you can't do that, we totally understand. If you still want to help the show, be sure to give it a rating and review in the podcast app on your iPhone, uh, if that's how you discovered it, or whatever uh, podcast playing app you use, Stitcher, Google Play, etc. It really spreads love and keeps this show going. So until next time, ride bikes, travel, and do good.